and this is Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. Almost yearly, I get asked the same question by either a student or a parent in an email. Mrs. Cabrera, why is all the literature you guys teach in your English classes so depressing? Why can't you guys choose a story that's more uplifting or inspirational? I was getting asked this so much in my early career that I turned it into a final discussion for my freshman classes when I still taught them. And it's a worthy question, to be honest. Freshman year, our students read Greek mythology that's full of sorrow and death and suffering. Uh, Oedipus Rex, Lord of the Flies, Catcher in the Rye, Romeo and Juliet. Maybe some even read Fahrenheit 451. Uh, by sophomore year, it's Rime of the Ancient Mariner, Beowulf, 1984, I mean, here we are, and Macbeth. Uh, junior year, Huck Finn, Ethan Frome, oof, The Great Gatsby, Death of a Salesman. So you should be asking, why on earth do I decide to further torture them with what I would think many of us would consider the most depressing of them all in Toni Morrison's Beloved? What are you doing, Mrs. Cabrera? Well, I haven't done it in a while. But writing poetry used to be a pretty important outlet for me, especially from about middle school through early parts of college. I've since realized that I'm really not very good at it, uh, unless I'm really inspired, or unless I have something more intellectual in the purpose behind it than an emotional one. But my use of poetry was generally just a negative outlet for my emotions. When I was angry, sad, upset, that's when I felt that I needed to express through that kind of artistic form. When I was happy, I was just simply being and doing other things. I didn't need the outlet for that. It wasn't suited for the outlet for me. So why not just express the feelings? Well, they aren't always that simple. And often just saying, I'm angry, wasn't enough. The word angry didn't really encapsulate the complexity of what I was actually experiencing. Although, to be fair, the poetry probably didn't either, but I kept on writing it anyway. But maybe I could get closer that way. And really, the poetry was for me, and not really for anyone else anyway. If I shared it, it was because either somebody was explaining an experience to me that I thought was analogous to where I was in the poem, or if I was trying to share something of myself that really wasn't expressible in conversation that way. So I wonder how true that kind of thing is for people who are much more successful writers of fiction than I am. That the fiction gives them a way to express something that really wasn't working in dialogical, dry, and upfront setting. That something ineffable had a much better chance of being communicated in an experience, even one that's through the manipulation of words than simply the words by themselves, even if only a narrative experience. I say only, but I don't really mean only. I don't think narrative experiences are only. I don't want to minimize the importance of what that can bring for us. I will never firsthand experience a lot of things. I've never been a paper boy at the turn of the 20th century. I'll never be a soldier in the Greco-Roman Wars. I've never uh, been a daughter of an immigrant who's struggling with communicating past and physical and emotional experience with that linguistic difference between myself and a native-born parent. The only way I get to experience any of that is through secondhand, either through observed distance of real people around me who have those experiences, or through maybe an even more intimate experience with the text. There's a really strange phenomenon that happens in the act of reading, too. It's called the fusion of horizons, which is something that Paul Ricoeur outlines in a masterwork of his called Time and Narrative. I am an individual, separate, distinct, in present time, 
in the act of reading, presently, a fictional text that was written probably well in the past, if not recently, in the, but still in the past, often by someone who may not even exist anymore in the present tense in any form. And it's not even necessarily the author who is present with me, um, though it is obviously their mind that gave occasion to the words on the page of the physical books that I'm experiencing. But when I'm reading dialogue or narrative accounts, I've assumed simultaneously a variety of real and imaginary voices, the omniscience of the first-person narrator, uh, the distinct and separate entities or voices of the many characters, and I get to look in on consciousness, and in a weird way I give occasion and I give voice to them. When I read the phrase, I wrote her name upon the strand, in the poem by Edmund Spencer, the eye of the poem and the eye of my own identity for a second are one. It's an invasion of consciousness, but in a way a consented-to invasion. The problem in this invasion, though, is when the consciousness of the book is so radically different from the reader to admit a breakdown. Or, perhaps it's even more problematic of an invasion when the ideas that are espoused by the consciousness of the text are problematic or just downright unethical. So what then? This may bring about another question, an aesthetic one. Can we separate art from the artist? The first time I read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings was after I had sat in on a class taught by my mentor, Dr. Key, awesome, uh, on Tolkien's work specifically in relation to Wagner's opera, The Ring. I'd already been playing music at that point for about seven or eight years through middle school and high school, and I was at that point committed to the school's music program. I was the principal oboe player of concert band and then the pops orchestra and choir that was kind of our premier group on campus. So I knew classical music. I liked classical music. I listened to Wagner before. So it came as a pretty severe shock to my system when we also had to qualify our discussion of the ring with his sympathetic perspectives to the Nazis. I mean, he isn't the only one, of course. Many believe that Aristotle was a misogynist. William S. Burroughs was so high that he accidentally shot and killed his own wife and somehow escaped murder charges. Or since Scott Card might have been a homophobic. And there are plenty of that sort of situation to go around today. All you gotta do is look at Hollywood. Can I no longer watch Bill Cosby's old comedy that I used to just roll on the floor with, just laughing so hard, but can I continue to laugh as I once unknowingly did? Can I no longer watch any of the movies that are produced by Harvey Weinstein's company? Do I have to feel bad every time I hear R. Kelly's I believe I can fly? I do, <laughs> but for other reasons. Do I have to turn off the television when I see certain sports stars who've either cheated on their wives or taken too many steroids and gotten caught or spew stupid conspiracy theories even though, you know, so they're some of the best athletes of their position in the sport? Can I divorce that performance, the created art, the object, from the subject that creates or sustains it? It's really not an easy question, and I don't have an answer, let alone an easy one, but this does raise some really interesting questions about the ethical role of art itself and the connection between artist, art, and viewer. There are two really prominent contemporary philosophers who spend considerable effort on discussing the point behind art. But I'll say that by art, I'm meaning particularly stories and probably even more specifically I'm talking about novels for the you know sake of the discussion of the novel we're having here today. It's not only an experiential representation of reality or a fictional experience deviating from reality, but an object who subjectively summons the powerful emotions that inspire and distrust of conventional pieties and exact frequent painful confrontations with one's own thoughts and intentions. 
Both Wayne Booth and Martha Nussbaum argue for the ethical criticism of literature, the way in which stories don't just simply serve as means for transmitting a message on intellectual grounds, but also on moral grounds. None of this really would be really surprising, of course. Aesop's fables seem to have existed since time began, and as a result, we kind of just generally assume there's some kind of moral theme to stories, children's stories especially. But sometimes we expect, especially in a more adult forms of story, that the childish simple lessons dissipate and give way to something more instructive or informative. It's why fantasy is seen as a genre for kids and what Tolkien fought so hard against all of his career. Fantasy is false. Stories are false. They can't tell us anything about reality and they don't tell us how to be and what to do. So we go to historical texts, expository, for the instruction in how to act and what to say and do, guidebooks and manuals. In her work Poetic Justice, Newsbaum supports the novel as worthy because it takes as its themes, as we might say, the interaction between general human aspirations and particular forms of social life that either enable or impede those aspirations, shaping them powerfully in the process. It is this shaping that novels have the power to do, and because they have power, and the element of choice we've discussed with the philosophies of Paul Ricoeur, there must be the discussion then of the ethicality of telling the story itself, and its power over the reader. So if that's the case, we as readers have to be aware of that power, and figure out what we are supposed to do about it. The writers, the storytellers, have an ethical responsibility to tell a story which is ethically viable, and will not just use that power over us for evil, so to speak. And we have an ethical responsibility to ourselves in how we receive the transmitted message, especially as it invades our consciousness in the act of reading. This is why critical thinking and critical reading are so important. Our horizons fuse with each act, often whether we like it or not. We have a responsibility then, Nussbaum claims, to choose readings responsibly for this reason. Similarly, Wayne Booth, in works like The Company We Keep and The Rhetoric of Fiction, seeks to put the ethicality in this relationship between the book, the reader, and the text in the same way that we would in personal relationships with somebody in the flesh. Booth and Nussbaum both reason that ethical criticism of narrative is necessary in terms of discovering the ethical message that's transmitted, which they argue exists inherently in the structure of narrative, both consciously and unconsciously. This view of narrative is important in discovering the influence that it has over the reader, as us, readers, which they both argue acts a lot of the same way as personal relationships do. At the basis of these kinds of communications, both in person and through the text of a narrative, lies the use of symbols, which are employed to convey meaning in a way that is crucially dependent on the intention of the user and on the ability of the interpreter to recognize that intention. In the example of face-to-face -face conversation, listeners are faced with the need to interpret the words of the speaker with whom they're engaging, and thus listeners must rely upon all kinds of employed interpretive powers to derive meaning from whatever the linguistic symbols are being given to them. Conversation, though, also denies us as listeners access to the actual thoughts, um, the unmediated feelings, and the true intentions of the speaker, which they experience, obviously, simultaneously and unmediated. But the minute that language is introduced, so here is the first level of symbolism and mediation. It's thus the speaker's job to make sure that they give clarity to their symbols as much as possible. But symbols are a joint effort. There must be a sender and a receiver in order for that kind of communication to occur. Reading a narrative as produced by an author works similarly, as readers are also unable to access the same actual thoughts, feelings, and intentions of the author as well. I think both Nussbaum and Booth would seem to agree on this. 
Literary communication, as is the case with face-to-face -face conversation, have to be mediated also through symbols to a reader, just written ones, who must also then do the proper work to interpret using a variety of similar clues. To do so, he must be familiar with the same kind of universal cultural context and then adequately bring all that information to the interpretation of the text. Second, the reader then also has to engage the text carefully and intently so to properly derive whatever that might mean and then synthesize and apply the meaning to the given symbol textually. Finally, the reader must do the necessary work to understand that context of the time at which the symbol was being used. And depending upon the proximity of the reader to the historical context of the author, this is kind of where it changes in face-to-face -face conversation. It's not as immediate. But this may take a little bit more or less effort to research the cultural and historical context as well as build familiarity with that person being communicated with. So to return to our previous question about divorcing art from the artist, well, that seems to become pretty difficult here as long as the work of art is determined to be an expression of a particular kind by an artist. And if we go on to assume that each message has ethical transmission, maybe it's possible that people, artists included, are complex beings and that certain transmissions of messages through their art can have intellectual and ethical veracity despite hypocritical problems with other intellectual and ethical views they may hold. Maybe they can be right about their views of beauty but wrong in how they treat their mothers and wives. Maybe they can be right about the problems of social justice for the poor despite holding anti-Semitic views. You know what? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> it actually kind of feels sort of yucky. But then none of us are perfect. There's even a logical fallacy for this, I think. To quo Q, which means that a position can be held to be right and actually be logical despite the holder's inconsistency on that issue. In other words, I can argue that abortion is politically permissible based on the situation of our Constitution, but then argue against getting one in my own personal practical life. In other news, dealing with complex persons is... complex. There's an even bigger problem at work under this, too, which is to ask, what even is ethical? How can we judge whether or not the message of the book is an ethical one, especially when we talk about how nuanced ethics are? And so many people believe that there aren't even truly right ethical answers. Objective universals, things that are clearly right and wrong, that we can even be basing this discussion on. So here's where things get a little bit meta. I'm going to contend that the way Seed tells her story about the moment that defined her identity is the same kind of thing that Toni Morrison's book as a whole is trying to do in delivering its own identity. So in a way, ethicality and identity are def definitely mixed here which would seem to suggest that we're doing something of character virtue ethics here. Could even make an existential premise to that in a way also. Uh, in either sense, broadly, actions often speak for who we are. And this becomes a twofold process, even in real life. We have internal dialogues from which we base our choices, and then we act. Then those acts reflect those internal processes, hopefully. But then our identities may not solely be our own. People see our actions, interpret them through their own conscious understandings, and then their decisions indirectly impress upon our identities as well. Sometimes this is pretty extreme. People are ostracized and isolated based on actions that define themselves and the way people around them act as a result. To be fair, especially as is the case with the actions of people close to you, people related to or people with whom you choose to closely associate, those actions can be just as defining for you, even if you weren't consciously in on the act. Humans are social, after all. So the end of the first part of Beloved, chapters 15 to 18, finally details the defining moment for Seath. It's interesting, because you see it from the perspective of several people, 
and the reactions of those around her as well, and your own reaction and judgment. So for the sake of discussion, let's say we're going to talk about this choice of seeds through the lens of virtue ethics. To do that, we have to understand how an act is judged in terms of morality through the system. The system itself is detailed by the philosophies of Aristotle and his work, The Nicomachean Ethics. For Aristotle, in order for an action to be deemed moral, it must be an act in accordance with the objective predetermined virtues, it must be the right action for the right moment, it must be in relation to the right reason or motive, and it has to be the right action given the specific subjective makeup of the person doing the action. He claims that a virtuous action lies usually between a vice of excess and a vice of deficiency. Narrow is the path to righteousness in this one. So for example, an action that is done in the right time for the right reason to the person's proper subjective standard can be called courage. Bravery, properly exhibited. Do something at the wrong time, too brazenly, and this is the vice of rashness. Fail to act at the right moment, and it's the vice of cowardice. He does leave an element of subjectivity, of relativism in this one. One person's act of courage based on their personality and genetic makeup might be different than another's. To get me to jump out of a plane will take a lot more effort of will than someone who does this frequently. So my act of courage measured against me will look quite different here. I use courage as the example specifically because I think it's courage that we want to question in relation to this choice of seeds. We actually get different perspectives of this event before Seeth speaks on it outright. The first comes from Baby Shugs, who wraps the event up in her own identity, first and foremost. She starts way back, discussing her own kids, her own time at Sweet Home, her own coming to freedom, and then her own spectatorship in Seeth's event. I honestly think chapters 15 and 16 are the most beautiful chapters in the book, despite their absolutely abhorrent content. So Baby Shugs, Seed's mother-in-law, and the grandmother to all of Seed's children, which is kind of a rarity in the time, lived on Sweet Home only when it was owned by the Garners, who actually treated their slaves with some level of benevolence and dignity. Slavery still slavery, but I guess it's better slavery. I don't know how to characterize that. When she and her son Hal were brought uh, from the Whitlows in Kentucky, Shugs' hip was already broken, and so she wasn't really asked to do any intensive work around Sweet Home. All the men, as well at that time, while they worked hard, were talked to like almost people. Uh, they were taught things if they wanted to learn anything, and they weren't at least treated like animals that could be studded out for breeding, which, God, that's terrible, or lent out for free labor. It is the gardeners who allow for Hal and Seed to be married and for them to rear their own children, uh, but once Mr. Gardner dies and leaving her sick at the time and unable to manage alone, Mrs. Gardner is the one who hires school teacher and the nephews to come take care of things, and they're the ones who become pretty much the slave drivers. But Baby Shugs is absent for pretty much all of that. Hal has already bought her freedom, and she's already been given 124. The key, then, was to get Hal and Seath there. Not as easy. When Seath and the children do arrive and some days go by and things look like they've finally maybe gone right, Baby Shugs does something that she surprisingly feels guilty for later. She throws something of a party, a celebration, a feast at least. Uh, it's unfortunate how all of that goes down. For others, especially the people around who, who were slaves and themselves understood that plight, to begrudge her that happiness. Every time anyone in this book has an ounce of happiness, 
it's absolutely depressing to me that the first thought that they have is that they're not allowed to have it, that they should feel guilty for it. And to some extent, I can kind of understand. Here I am, really very privileged. I live in a really nice area in a country that has money with a good family and a good job with stability and relative comfort. I complain about things, menial things, like how frustrating my job is here at home during this pandemic, which it by far is. I catch myself all the time, even though I complain a lot about it these days, about how hard all this is. And it, do and it, it is, don't get me wrong, but I still feel guilty about saying anything because so many people have it so much worse than I do. Which, man, I didn't know it was going to end up right here, and I really wasn't intending to do so, but I don't want to get off point. But are we really allowed to suffer our small sufferings, however important to us and unimportant they might be in the grand scheme, if there are others who suffer so much more? Are my personal suffering is not important as long as there are others who have it worse? Are we now in competition for who suffers more? Should I feel guilty that I don't suffer as much as others? So for the neighbors around 124 to discourage and turn themselves on baby Shugs for feeling even an ounce of happiness, despite all their collective sufferings, to force her to feel bad about it, it just sucks to me. If anything, the society that knows what it is to suffer should joy in others' joy in the same empathetic way. But it's not so. Baby Shugs suggests that this is the omen, that her happiness was too boisterous and so she's been in some way served up some kind of reminder almost. Newtonian law of physics, what goes up must come down, sort of backwards karma. Baby Shugs leads us up to the event and then takes responsibility in some mystical way, sort of, for it. Chapter 16 it takes a little bit more of an omniscient standpoint, but it focuses on the white people's response to the moment. 28 days, the magic number the book has been alluding to the whole time, and school teacher and the nephews track seething the kids to 124. They wrangle up a sheriff with the intent of taking back their property. This was the omen baby Shugs foresaw. Even without a clear description of the scene, the view of it from the description of the white man's reaction shows surprisingly plenty. Right off, it was clear, to schoolteacher especially, that there was nothing there to claim. The three, now four, because she'd had the one coming when she cut, pickaninnies, meaning her children, they had hoped were alive and well enough to take back to Kentucky, take back and raise properly to do the work Sweet Home desperately needed, were not. Two were lying open-eyed in the sawdust. A third pumped blood down the dress of the main one. The woman schoolteacher bragged about, the one he said made fine ink, damn good soup, pressed his collars the way he liked, besides having at least ten breeding years left. Oof. But now she'd gone wild, due to the mishandling of the nephew who'd overbeat her and made her cut and run. School teacher had chastised that nephew, telling him to think, just think. What would his own horse do if you beat it beyond the point of education? Or Chipper or Samson? Note that the dogs even get real and dignified names as if there are somehow more persons than the slaves. Suppose you beat the hounds past the point that away. Never again could you trust them in the woods or anywhere else. You'd be feeding them, maybe, holding out a piece of rabbit in your hand, and the animal would revert, bite your hand clean off. So he punished that nephew for not letting him come on the hunt. Whoopee. Made him stay there, feed stocks, feed himself, feed Lillian, tend crops. See how he liked it. See what happened when you overbeat creatures God had given you the responsibility of. The trouble it was, and the loss. The whole lost lot was lost now. Five. 
He could claim the baby struggling in the arms of the mewing old man, but who'd tender? Because the woman, something was wrong with her. She was looking at him now, and if his other nephew could see that look, he would learn the lesson for sure. You just can't mishandle creatures and expect success. The nephew, the one who had nursed her while his brother held her down, didn't know he was shaking. His uncle had warned him against that kind of confusion, but the warning didn't seem to be taking. What's she going to do that for? On account of a beating? Hell, he'd been beaten a million times, and he was white. Once it hurt so bad and made him so mad he'd smashed the well bucket. Another time he took it out on Samson. A few tossed rocks was all, but no beating ever made him. I mean, no way he could have. What's she going to do that for? And that is what he asked the sheriff, who was standing there amazed like the rest of them, but not shaking. He was swallowing hard, over and over again. What she want to go and do that for? Seeing the situation, Baby Shugs assesses quickly, as she always does, and begins setting things straight. She takes the boys to tend to their wounds, then has to wrangle seeds for the girl she's holding lifeless in her arms, and eventually takes back Denver from Stamps because he's crying for food. So she hands Denver to Seath, who is then taken, you know, baby and mom, although Seath, uh, Shug's almost pretty much regrets this too, to prison for her crime. Everybody around 124 sees this entire scene go down. The neighbors, who basically didn't help by warning anybody because they were too jealous of the feast from the previous night, and just think that baby Shug's brought this all on herself by not staying in her lane. How dare she have a good time? The people of the house... The white people who come for her. We actually don't get a strict description of the scene, really, at any point. All of it is in fragmented, dropped pieces in each of these narratives. In chapter 17, we get the reaction of Paul D., which then forces a confrontation of it in chapter 18, with him asking Seath about it. It's here that we now realize that this is essentially the question that the kid at the school asked of Denver that forced her not to return to school. And while we don't know exactly what the question is, we can probably make some important guesses. In Chapter 17, Paul D. finds a newspaper clipping of the event and takes it to Stamp to ask about it, since Paul D. can only really read bits and pieces of it without putting together too much of the meaning. Fragmented conversation and Paul D. in denial, and that's where we end up at Chapter 18 with the final fragments of what's going on here, but from Seed's direct remembrance, contextualization, and a little bit of defense... Seed dances and circles around the narrative without ever saying it directly, in the same way that Baby Shugs does and Paul D. does. It's a very common refrain here. We have to do a lot to put the pieces together, so in a way the truth isn't said, so is it then not real? I never said that, is always a defense here. And in some ways it feels more justified, like this really can't be said and be given the gravity that it was. Note that I'm kind of following the same pattern here. I don't know if I can put into words without it becoming something sterile and medical and losing the impact. Like Nussbaum says of the ethics of storytelling, which she takes also from Aristotle, but not in the Nicomachean Ethics, instead this is his poetics, the way in which we respond to a good novel can often help purge us of some strong emotions, which may help us to lead more balanced emotional lives. This is true not only of the idea of purging strong emotions like fear, as Aristotle notes, but it also helps us, as Nussbaum points out, to cultivate connections to others through human emotions of pity and compassion. 
Novels serve as points of fine-tuning our emotions of pity and compassion. They allow us to interact at a respectable distance, almost in such a way as to practice internally responding to the various situations of human connectivity, so that when it comes time to connect with live others, we're aware of the ways that we can act and react and are equipped with a positive sense of otherness. But this story doesn't succeed in that way. I mean, I definitely feel the otherness in this, and it's so far other that it's a struggle to feel more than pity and compassion from a remote distance. And I think it's effectively on purpose. I feel ashamed of that fact. In a way, this event is described the way a lot of philosophers describe God, through negatives. What God isn't. This event, this choice that Seeds makes, is about what it's not. It's described by the absence of a positive descriptor. It's honed in on, but never pinpointed. We'll never know what it actually was like, what people actually felt other than these externalized reactions or the distance of time that exists as the event horizon of the black hole of the truth here. Seath speculates. Seath knew that the circle she was making around the room, him and the subject, would remain one. That she could never close in, pin it down for anybody who had to ask. If they didn't get it right off, she could never explain. Because the truth was simple. Not a long, drawn-out record of flowered shifts, tree cages, selfishness, ankle ropes, and wells. Simple. She was squatting in the garden, and when she saw them coming and recognized schoolteacher's hat, she heard wings. Little hummingbirds stuck in her needle beaks right through the headcloth into her hair and beat their wings. And if she thought anything, it was, no, 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 no. Simple. She just flew. Collected every bit of life she had made, all the parts of her that were precious and fine and beautiful and carried, pushed, dragged them through the veil, out, away, over there where no one could hurt them, over there, outside this place, where they would be safe. And the hummingbird wings beat one. I don't know what this is actually really meaning to allude to, but I'm guessing maybe the panic of heartbeat? I'm not really sure. Seath paused in her circle again and looked out the window. So let's put together the puzzle pieces. Seath was at home at 124 for 28 days of relative freedom. I say relative because you can still feel the oppression, even between the neighbors that are black and the lack of being able to really directly say what's said. It's gotta, I would imagine, take time to recover from any of the traumas that she's experienced as a slave, and perhaps you don't recover from those. Honestly, I don't, I'll never be able to know this. So one day, as they're out doing their daily chores, she sees school teacher coming to collect her and the kids, his property. She panics, doesn't think, just reacts, entirely reaction. She grabs all of her kids, both boys, the daughter who never got a name in Denver, and takes them to the shed. Same shed, probably, that Paul D. has been sleeping in when Beloved magically forces him out of the house. Nothing in the shed at that point but some wood splinters and a saw. She grabs the saw and begins to go to work. She makes her way through the unnamed girl who has completely bled out of her throat by the time she's caught. She's already tried to throw Denver at the wall of the shed enough to break her neck, misses and fails at doing anything other than making baby Denver cry, and she's already sawed through enough of the necks of the boys that they're barely conscious, but still alive. One presumes from her talk that she was intending probably to commit herself, also, but didn't quite get that far. Without rationalizing or excusing or justifying, Seath says, I stopped him, meaning school teacher. I took and put my babies where they'd be safe. And Paul D. just, he can't fathom. And he's seen some stuff himself. And even this is too much for him. 
this here C talked about love like any other woman, talked about baby clothes like any other woman, but what she meant could cleave the bone. This here Seath talked about safety with a handsaw. This new Seath didn't know where the world stopped and she began. Suddenly he saw what Stampede wanted him to see. More important than what Seath had done was what she claimed. It scared him. It worked, she said. How? Your boy's gone, you don't know where. One girl dead, the other won't leave the yard. How did it work? They ain't at sweet home. School teacher ain't got him. Maybe there's worse. Paul D's point is interesting. And I've ever, actually never really stopped to consider it before. Maybe there's worse. And obviously, it seems to suggest that Seed's point is that there is no more horrible of fate than her experience at Sweet Home. That clearly death is the preferable option. But is it? Had she succeeded in killing all four, they wouldn't be alive to contemplate this, to live with it. Unfortunately, though... Both boys survive. Did I say unfortunately? Ooh. Well, I think that's Paul D's thought, though. And they're old enough at the time to understand it. The girl with no name is dead, and it has been haunting the house in various forms since. Denver is alive, but can't go anywhere or do anything because of the stigma that sits on the house she lives in, and the mother that she, you know, is connected to. She can't escape it. Even if it's not her own conscious choice. Even if she doesn't actually have the physical or emotional scars of the event since she was really too young to remember any of it. Seed certainly does. It has to affect her, right? How could you possibly hold your child down and saw through its neck without totally being destroyed by this? Unless, of course, you were already destroyed before this. And that moment of bliss at 124 of 28 Days of Freedom was like walking through foggy, unreal mist. That it was just a taunt, and you knew better. How can I possibly judge her actions from my place in life? From an undignified, moral high ground that just makes me feel more ashamed of myself for thinking it's my place to judge. Paul D., someone in her position, at least remotely, surely passes judgment, likening her to an animal. You got two feet, see, not four. Which I don't know how, if he realizes how crappy of a statement that is, given that the nephews literally milked her like a cow on four feet. It seems a little unfair for him to say something like that, knowing her trauma. But at the same time, there isn't anyone else who has experience anywhere near the same to be able to judge her actions. I judge her, and I go back to those same moral systems that white men have advanced since ancient Greece. Aristotle's virtue ethics, right action, right time, right reason. I mean, it's pretty hard to talk about this rationally, because she doesn't even rationalize it in the moment. She acts. And while virtue is a habit in Aristotle's philosophy and you act virtuously without having to really rationalize it in the moment, if that's her go-to action, well, that's pretty self-defining. And that self-defining is murderous. So maybe we try utilitarianism. Well, she can't possibly know what would actually happen to them on Sweet Home again if they were returned, but it's probably worse than the freedom they have now. But life is better than death, and especially a super painful death at the hands of your own mother, and even free. Can you hear my scare quotes there? Jeez. Here at 124 isn't really free, and the pain of that event and the trauma it's caused the kids who are alive, yikes. So, based on that system, probably still immoral. So maybe existentialism works. We're all going to die anyway, right? Well, there's more to existential moral, if you can call it that. 
which comes from Sartre's humanism and his existentialism and suggests that actions aren't inherently meaningfully universal, but that a man's action becomes definitive for all man's action as potential. So if Hitler murders a whole bunch of people, that's a defining possibility for all men. So if Seed finds an event and reason to kill her kids, then this is a defining and possible action now for all man. That's a lot of weight to carry on your shoulders. But like I said, this is all well and good from a moral high ground of cushy living. So I return back to the definition of Aristotle's philosophy of courage, the virtue between a vice of excess, rashness, and a vice of deficiency, cowardice. Can this even be a discussion here? What courage does it take to be demeaned as a human being every day? What courage does it take to be beaten and treated worse than a dog? I mean, you heard me read the passage from School Teacher's Perspective earlier. He names the dogs and talks about them with more personhood than the people in front of him. What courage does it take to run away knowing full well you could be dead? What courage does it take to have children knowing you can't actually take care of them and love them closely, knowing that they may be ripped from you at any moment? What courage does it take to find freedom and start to live a life after everything? So is it cowardice to run to the only place that could be run to at that moment? If you're all going to be dead, if not literally as a result of the punishments of excess that slavery might entail, well then at least figuratively, since the person of free will that was built in 28 days surely will never be a person again in slavery, what's the difference then? To die at the hands of slave drivers or as a result of the love of your mother, who believes she's making you safe and free after a moment's pain, short-term pain, or a long drawn out inhuman pain. I return back to my initial point about reading a book for ethical lessons and then also reading it ethically for my own moral action. Given the content of this moment here and the fact that I'm actually entertaining the idea that death and the murder of my children, no less, is preferable to the life of a slave, to be the obnoxious elitist is this book advocating infanticide, and should people read and consider that option realistically? First, people are obnoxious. This book isn't advocating infanticide. This book isn't advocating violence. All of this is abhorrent, and that's precisely the point, to drive people to such severe actions and thinking that they don't believe that they have any other choices or ways out as a result of oppression is the abhorrent and immoral act of the book, not seeds. Her action is jarring, and her desire to make sense of it and judge it over and against our own lives and understandings and morality and action doesn't really compute. We can do it, I mean, we just tried, in earnest, without any malintent or condemning of this poor woman's actions, but we come up empty-handed. Was she a coward? Or was this a compelling, if warped, version of courage? I mean, I definitely don't have it in me to go through with an action like that once alone, but four times. But the point of reading a text like this is precisely to draw that immense contrast. To use my imagery from prior episodes, this is the bridgeless chasm between the places that we occupy and the places occupied by others whose circumstances are so wildly unlike our own that we can't even begin to judge them in it. We simply just don't have enough information. And maybe the moral of the story is that we'll never have enough information to rationalize it or that the judgment will happen because it just simply isn't an option. We have to confront it, look at it, 
And maybe we get as far as to pass the same judgment on it that school teacher and the nephews do, and only being able to go so far as to say, why'd she go and do that for? Only we can do so from a far more empathetic perspective, especially if we do the ethical thing of seeing Seath as as much of a person as ourselves. Because she is. We return back to Martha Nussbaum's philosophies in poetic justice, catharsis, and the central idea that narratives allow us to put our guard down for an instant long enough to entertain the notion of a wide-built empathy. Let us hope we never have to meet another who is suffering like this. But we will certainly meet many others who are suffering. I know it seems like we could see Beloved, see Seed's suffering, her stunted dreams, and her simple desires and pleasures, and then turn around and look at Gatsby and Willie Loman and tell them to sit down and shut up because they have it just fine by comparison. But honestly, that's the wrong answer. It should make us more compassionate toward them in recognizing suffering as suffering. It's never something we want to tolerate, or should. Fortunately, humans are great at persevering and adapting and find the joy where it exists, no matter how small or remote or trivial, but we should not aim to be the neighbors of 124 in the story, who begrudge Baby Shugs her free happiness and her will to celebrate it, and thus don't warn her when the white men come, and thus maybe in a small way contribute to see his actions. Because in a way, when we belittle the suffering of even the great and wealthy among us, we do the same thing. We jealously trivialize their suffering, say it's not as bad and that they have plenty and shouldn't complain. If nothing else, the lack of ability to connect to Seed's story at her level should help us to connect better and more empathetically to the narratives that we can connect to more closely at our level. Well, that's a lot. That wraps up the first book of Beloved. It's kind of a, a downer, for sure. Uh, but we'll take a look at the movement forward from here and see if we can get kind of past this full view of the past. We'll be able to better track the consequences, hopefully, as we move forward. But anyway, thanks for listening today. If you're interested in any of all this ethical criticism of narrative that I've alluded to, definitely, absolutely go out and check out Wayne Booth's rhetoric of fiction. Uh, Paul Ricoeur's time in narrative is great, as well as Martha Nussbaum's uh, poetic justice that I've referenced here today. I definitely want to say a quick thank you to Dr. Brian Trainer, who's a philosophy professor at Loyola Marymount University, for all the inspiration for this episode. He was probably my absolute favorite master's course as a student in his narrative ethics course uh, while I was there. Please subscribe. More resources can be found in the episode details for this one. I'm Stacey Cabrera, and you've been listening to Fill in the Details. 